Hi, I'm Allison Pease, Associate Provost for Institutional Effectiveness at John Jay College. Welcome to our Distinguished Teaching Series, in which we celebrate the dedication to student-centered and innovative teaching practices of our Distinguished Teaching Prize winners. In today's interview, I talk with Timothy McCormick, Associate Professor of English and Director of the College's Writing Across the Curriculum program. I begin the interview by asking him what winning the Distinguished Teaching Prize means to him. I guess it means that I'm not crazy. Um, I sometimes feel as if um, when I'm talking about teaching, whether it's a faculty development session or you know just a hallway conversation, that some of the things that I do in class seem a little different than what other folks do. In the materials that you presented for the award, you talk a lot about having students engage with each other and that it's collaborative learning in your courses. Can you describe for our listeners what that actually looks like in a sort of class-by-class class level? And how do you know that students are learning when they're just talking to one another? Well, that's a big question. Um, yeah, I mean, to describe it, uh, I'm not saying that I taught this way my entire career, but I've developed into this kind of teacher. Um, what I think works the best is students um, need to talk and write as much as possible during the hour and 15 minutes that you're with them. Uh, for me to just do one-way discourse standing in front of the room, um, even if it involves showing them something, and I'm not saying that I never do this, but um, if I'm going to stand in front of the room for the whole hour and 15 and just show them things and have me talk about those things, even if I'm taking questions, that's not um, enough for them to really deeply learn something. So usually it, it looks like this. I will spend the first part of the class showing them what we're trying to learn for that day. And then I have an activity of some kind uh, that reinforces what I just tried to show them. Um, so for example, you know, let's say I'm trying to teach um, the structure of a research project. And so I will give them some sort of demonstration of that structure, usually by looking at a model in front of the room and maybe I've annotated the model and I'm just going through a few points, no more than 10 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. And then I will give them an activity to do that seemingly has nothing to do with writing. Um, it'll be something about structure. Uh, sometimes it's a game of some kind, sometimes it's a you know, a visual, in terms of structure, I might give them some sort of visual um, aptitude test for how to organize something. Um, you know, something that's difficult, though, where the groups would come up with different answers. Um, and then we will have a, uh, you know, and this is how I will know that they're starting to learn, is that we'll have a conversation, a class conversation about, you know, what did they notice while doing that activity? And I don't say very much during these things. You know, this is just to get them to think about the ideas. Um, and often my students will say, well, you know, what does this have to do with writing? Um, it's the next activity where I will actually give them uh, 
you know, something to organize that is in words. So one famous one that um, I've used a couple of times is I cut up um, a poem or a short story into pieces and I give it to them and have them rearrange it. Mm-hmm. And they will um, come up with different, perfectly logical and actually sometimes better than the original versions of the story by moving the pieces around and putting them in a different order. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about you know, why they made those choices or what the advantages were of those choices. And again, during all this time, I'm just, I've just designed it. Um, they do the work, they do the discussing, um, both in the groups and I will travel around to the groups and listen in and, you know, click in something here or there, but mostly it's them uh, wrestling with whatever the task is I've given them. Uh, and then, you know, a third activity during that class session might be to actually have one of the students um, put their research project up on the monitor in front of the room and we will talk about the structure of that essay. And so in the entire class session, I did the initial 10, 12 minutes. And then after that, it's really them working with each other. It's also some simple things like I always use we when I talk about teaching because you know we're learning together. Uh, they teach me things about structure that I had never thought of. Um, they manage to come up with uh, solutions to things that I could never even have figured out. Um, another example might be uh, in my English 201 course. I, you know, because it's a writing in the disciplines course. Mm-hmm. I really want them to get the experience of writing in different disciplines. So about five years ago or so, I started having them do a, an experiment in class. So they form groups of researchers and then they design and carry out an experiment. And it's, it's astonishing to me how often they come up with experiment designs, you know, given the limited time resources and materials they're only allowed to use things that are you know that they can produce relatively quickly and you know they work together in groups once you establish that as the classroom culture um it's like you're watching four people in a group all learning at the same time instead of Mm. one person learning with you and everyone else just listening in or watching that learning. And I'm not at all saying that no learning is taking place there, but I just think the collaborative learning produces a much deeper, more thorough, uh, you know, sense of, of understanding in the students. So I'm sure I have a sense um, because you make it explicit at the beginning of the class, what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing, that it feels purposeful. It does. I mean, I can't, you know, the first few sessions of, you know, the semester, I think they still have doubts. Like, what is this madman doing? Um, And why is he having us do these things? But very quickly, if you use group work consistently, by the end of the semester, you don't even really have to say it. You know, Mm -hmm. you just lay it out for them what we're going to do today and why we're, you know, what the thing it is we're trying to learn. And um, if you've designed the activities, well um they'll they'll run with it um so yeah i i also i i don't do this so much anymore but i did spend a long time where i would actually 
as the notes for the class, I would write on the board what, you know, what are we doing today and um, what the learning objectives are. Um, I still do that out loud, um, but I, you know, that's probably something that I should go back to because um, I think that makes it explicit to the students as well. John Jay is a unique place. We have courses that we offer to law enforcement officers, and we offer courses to those who serve time in prison. You have taught both. You teach in the NYPD Executive Master's Program, as well as in our Prison to College Pipeline, the courses we offer at Otisville Correctional Facility. How do you understand navigating those different terrains in terms of our mission for justice? Or do you even feel that there's any navigating you do? Actually, it's a question that has been asked me many, many times, uh, you know, when people find out that I've done both of these things. So it's not um, that crazy of a question. Uh, I don't know how this ended up. It just sort of happened. Um, and I kind of uh, started teaching in both places without even uh, seriously contemplating those things because um, I just felt like teaching is teaching and whatever students have chosen to come into a classroom, uh, my job is not to, um, you know, figure out some sort of stance to take. It's really about them figuring out what it is they want to learn and guiding them to that learning. Right. So um, it wasn't until after the semester was over, um, there was one semester in particular where I was doing both groups at the same time. And it wasn't until after the semester was over that I started to think about, you know, what you're, what you're um, asking me. Um, so I, I think there is a tremendous um, power in the ability to use language. Well, um, you know, I, I, term it to my students, rhetoric for the good, that the goal of any writing, research-based writing class that I'm trying to teach is that you learn the rhetorical moves that help you um, deliver a meaningful message out into the world. And, you know, I suppose you can use rhetoric for the ill, rhetoric for the bad, but, you know, that's not what I'm uh, I'm not, I'm not there to make that decision for you. Um, my goal is to, uh, help you, um, get your message out to the world in a way that it's going to be impactful, that it's going to have, um, some sort of life beyond the creation of the text by you. You know, you're going to learn something by creating the text, but you also want to put your text out into the world and have an impact. And that's true whether I'm teaching business writing, creative nonfiction, journalism, uh, you know, or in this case, uh, creative, you know, English 201 to uh, prisoners at Otisville or um, the NYPD executive masters um, students who are you know, running precincts and divisions of the uh, police department across the city. Um, their goal is always the same. 
They want to create text that people will listen to. So in terms of the justice space within those two things, um, no matter who you are or what your position is in life, you have a right to language and to be able to use language as well as you, um, as you can achieve. So uh, the, the students at Otisville Correctional Facility are far and away the best students I've ever taught in my life. Um, I tell this story often, um, teaching creative nonfiction, and I was a little leery of it because I hadn't taught it in a while. And I walked in the first day of class and the students were already there. And they'd started discussing the first text, which wasn't even on the syllabus to read until the next class. And I walked in, introduced myself, and then said, just keep talking. And proceeded to, they did have chalkboards there. I proceeded to fill the board for 45 minutes just with things they were saying that were so smart and intelligent. And, and I just, at the end, I just said, those are the notes for the class. We've already covered the first text. You know, they already did their job. So, you know, that's their ownership and their um, interest level and their willingness to uh, encounter new ideas. And in a way, that's, that's powerful justice in action, um, just giving them that opportunity to do that. The NYPD master's students are trying to write a master's level thesis project that has to have a serious primary research component. They are out on, you know, their, their day jobs, so to speak, is to design police practices that are fair and just while still um, getting the job done. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of what they learn by, you know, through my course and the others in the program is that um, what they originally thought of as easy answers to things, if only we could just do this, um, you know, or this is what we should do and that would solve this crime problem. Um, by doing their research projects, they learn that it's much more complicated than that. And they learn the viewpoint of the, um, the folks who are being arrested. Um, so I think that is a justice moment too, by learning how to do solid quality research from an academic standpoint, as opposed to, um, you know, the Comstat statistics reporting standpoint that they're used to. Um, I think they learn a great deal of justice too. Um, but in neither case do I walk in there and throw it down their throats that, you know, there's a justice imbalance here, or, um, you know, I used to call it banking from the left, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than um, the, the righteous, um, you know, we need to live in a just world society, um, and I'm going to tell you how to do that, it's, a, it's letting them come to those realizations on their own. So, I mean, that's the best answer I can give as far as... Um, well, in both different cases, places. Yeah, in both cases, it seems like student-centered learning is the guide. And that's all the social justice you need. Tim, I know that you've done a lot of faculty development, just a ton. Um, so I'm sure that you're well acquainted with the questions I'm about to ask. But I do think that a lot of faculty want to know, 
many faculty at John Jay want to improve the writing of their students, but they feel that they haven't been trained in how to teach writing so that they feel I can't do it. What would you want them to know about teaching writing? Well, I mean, one, don't worry about that you think you don't know it because you actually do know it. Um, all faculty members are rhetoricians in the sense that they know writing in their own discipline. Um, you know, there's very few faculty members who don't write. What, even faculty members who are not, who are adjunct faculty members and have a uh, work in a profession for their day job, so to speak, um, they're still writing at work all, all the time. So, you know, they, they do know it. Maybe they don't know how to teach it, but they should take the confidence that they can teach it because they know how to do it themselves. Um, what I would want them to do, you know, or think about is understanding their own writing process and how they get words on the page, how they get to complex ideas, um, and realize that it's probably a long process they go through, that it's not uh, a, a simple, um, you know, here's your paper assignment, deliver the final version on the last day of class. So, um, you know, these are things that come right out of the writing across the curriculum uh, movement, you know, which goes back to like the 1970s, you know, scaffold the assignment, um, have the students uh, do peer review on the early drafts, um, do writing to learn activities before you even give the assignment. Uh, in my class, um, you know, I don't always teach writing classes, but even in my first year seminar, for example, we write in class every day and we bring, uh, the students are required to bring a piece of writing every day. That's how they convey their knowledge. They don't just read the text and come to class with some ideas in their head. They come to class with a short piece of writing that is not graded uh, most of the time, not even read by me just shared in groups and then um, put up on their, uh, you know, their education portfolio. And that's, you know, that's the end of the life for that piece of writing. But what that has done is given them practice with writing, but also it has helped them to learn the material. And so I would, I would hope that um, faculty members at the college would realize that writing, um, can be used to learn material, not just report on what students have already learned or not just to repeat what they read, but to find new knowledge. And that is what makes classroom discussion go better. It's what makes even um, students, you know, writing to learn is a form of studying, you know, so it helps students do better on tests because they had to write about it. So, um, you know, I think it's as simple as that on a very base level, have students write more and have them write more often. Um, and don't feel like you have to read every word and respond to every word and correct the grammar of everything they say um, or everything they write. Um, it's about getting to ideas. Do you want to weigh in on this grammar? versus writing to learn idea a little bit further. Um, 
just because I've heard you say it here now, you, you raised the specter. Um, so often I think many of us feel responsibility for uh, students to be able to write in a fashion that will help them go far after college. And by saying that, I guess I'm going to come right out and say by writing in grammatically standard English. Do we need to be grading for that? Do we need to be commenting on that for students to improve? We absolutely positively need to be grading for that and commenting on that for students to improve. Um, you are asking me to weigh into some very treacherous waters here, but um, the, the issue is not whether we need to be doing that it's whether that's all we need to be doing um, and what percent of our commentary and our response to students is based on that. Um, you know, in the writing program, we do a uh, outcomes assessment every um, semester, as you know, and one of the categories, one of the, one of our eight learning objectives is called conventions. And it is those, you know, grammar issues that you're referring to. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that category invariably pretty much, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but I would want to say every single time we've done our outcomes assessment, which consists of a, you know, a group of faculty reading student portfolios, um, you know, so it's a diverse group of faculty in terms of uh, experience, newness to our program, et cetera. And conventions is never the lowest score. It, I would want to say in almost every situation, it's the highest score. Mm -hmm. It's not that, you know, the conventions are perfect. It's that um, that's not where the trouble lies. Um, so, where does it lie? I'm sorry? Where does it lie? Uh, in the, what, what writing professionals talk about, higher order issues. So, um, you know, if you were to fix every... Um, subject verb agreement error, every plural possessive error, every um, comma splice even in a particular piece of student writing, it still wouldn't be a good piece of student writing. Right. It's got to have structure, organization. It has to have something it wants to say. It mm -hmm. has to use evidence well. It mm -hmm. has to, and this is regardless of what discipline you're writing in. Right. So these are like the writing across the curriculum, um, you know, issues that or, or ideas that you're trying to get across. Um, you know, if, if this if the student doesn't have something that they really want to say and then they don't have any any way or any knowledge of how to use evidence within that kind of writing, uh, you know, take. Um, take a in my 201 class, I also have them do a social science research report. And what they learn there is how to use quantitative data. If they don't know how to do that, it doesn't matter if we fit all, if we, you know, have them fix all their errors. It's still not going to be a good project with something meaningful and worthy to say. It's not going to be in the right structure. Um, a informed reader is not going to accept their conclusions if they didn't follow the, um, the subheads and put all the material in the right places. So, you know, what I want to say is the, you know, 
the grammar stuff is actually, um, it's a developmental issue. It takes a long time for students with particular errors to solve those errors. Um, so many of the errors come from uh, the other languages that students know. Um, mm -hmm. And for them to recognize that error um, and solve that error and then um, you know, go on to not have that error in the future, that's a many year project. Um, we can all do our parts and we can point out the errors, um, but we can't, um, we can't make that the sole focus. Um, and I guess the other thing I would say is when you do make that the sole focus, especially for a student who does have a lot of errors, um, it can prevent them from even wanting to write. Um, I have a questionnaire I give out at the, you know, in my English 101 class. So this is students first semester in college. And one of the questions is, you know, do you like to write? And the answer is no, like 85% of the time. Yeah. And then another question I said, what do you think is wrong with your writing? And the answer is grammar, 85% of the time. Oh, right. And that's just debilitating as a teacher of writing because you got to get over that. If they're not even willing to write because they hate it, uh, how are they going to improve? And so, so how do you create desire, the desire to write? Uh, I mean, said it before, you know, writing early and often, writing without high stakes, writing to share with an audience where you get immediate and personal feedback, mm -hmm. meaning that the faculty member can't read every word and respond to every word. You have to use the other readers in the room. Um, I've developed this through the use of digication. I've developed this fabulous um, uh, trick technique of um, you know the students post all of their writing work whether it's a writing course or not they're posting all of their writing work for the semester on digication and I have them read each other's work so we read it you know in class when they bring something that will be shared in a group but now, um, because digication allows you to expand the walls of the classroom, you can assign them to read each other's work as the text for the course. And it has little comment boxes. So similar to like, you know, someone who's, do, who's blogging, um, they're getting feedback from readers. And that just, it's like adding kindling to a slow burning fire. Mm. It just makes them want to write more because they have an audience. There's somebody listening. There's someone commenting. Um, mm -hmm. So I also, um, in all the courses I teach, I use student texts as part of the text of the course. Um, mm. This, of course, can't work if I'm teaching a brand new course, but most of the courses I teach, I've done a number of times. So I take the best student work from previous semesters and I just slot in the student texts um, in with the regular, you know, quote, published authors. And I don't, I usually format them so they look like similar to the other ones. Yeah. And I don't really tell them, but I do put like the author bio somewhere, you know, end of the piece or at the bottom of the first page. And sooner or later, someone will say, wait a minute is this like one of your former students? And I, absolutely, you know, and they read it, they've read it as if it was just a published piece that they were assigned by a professor, but that also fuels their own desire to write. Do you right. mean 
you know, and I guess digication itself does that as well. You know, you're, you're taking your writing. It's not just in class handed to the professor and then, you know, given back a couple of days later, you're putting it up in a space and other people are reading it. Um, so it's kind of like publishing and yeah. that's how you get, that's how you get students to write more, um, you know, and to, to feel ownership over their writing and to be willing to, I mean, my students, I, I don't think my students, while they're taking my course, like me so much um, <laughs> because they, you know, they, and it's in my student evaluations, you know, really gives a lot of work. We write all the time. You have to write, you know, tons and tons of pages. Yeah. And, you know, that's not something they're used to doing. Um, as they're doing it, they're not necessarily, you know, seeing its benefit. But I think they become authors. They have the feeling of authorship. And that's what spurs them to, in the end, produce, you know, the good work that they do near the end of the course. In the spirit of making small changes to improve, is there something that you do as a teacher that you feel makes a difference to student learning that you think others could adopt fairly easily? I think the trigger for me to become a better teacher was when um, I sort of angled everything. I've kind of said this already. I sort of angled everything towards the students and came into the classroom with um, activities that were meticulously designed, but not with a set of, you know, a hundred things that I wanted to convey to the students that particular day. Um, mm -hmm. I guess that also comes out of, you know, teaching for a long time that, you know, during the course of the semester, there are definitely things that I do want to convey. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not a list of prescribed things. So I guess my small thing is to always remind yourself that the students are going to take the class and the direction um, that they needed to go, uh, whether you're just, you know, doing a class discussion or doing a group activity or, um, I mean, when I was first teaching, I had a lot of control in the room. I, I, I was definitely someone who wanted to control everything that happened. And it took me a long time to realize that the best learning happens when, when the teacher is a facilitator and a coach and an encourager. And I guess a, a monitor of um, what's going on to make sure it goes deep enough. And so mm -hmm. to some people that sounds like you're teaching less. And to me, um, it's exhausting. It's teaching more uh, to, to be um, able to, to, to enable students to, to do the learning on their own. Um, and again, it's not, it's not just, uh, you know, walking into the classroom with nothing, that day and saying, okay, well, what do you guys want to do? Um, the activities are structured, the, you know, everything's planned, 
but once the once the train leaves the station, they're driving, and I'm just making sure it doesn't go off the tracks. <laughs> you know, and that's really a bad metaphor because it's not a track. It's more like a, um, you know, you're more like in a car, and you you're choosing among many directions. Um, you're not uh, following a prescribed trail. Timothy McCormack, winner of the John Jay Distinguished Teaching Prize 2020. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. 